This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. The process of raising our boys has made me very aware of the power of influence. As a father, I want to be careful and use my influence in the right way. Teach my boys uh, the kind of men that I want them to grow up to become. And as much as my words make an impact on them, I've come to realize that my example is as important, probably more important than anything that I have to say. I learned this uh, in a variety of ways. One occasion was when I was walking up the stairs, thinking about all the things that I needed to get done, something I had to get out of the bedroom. And I turned the corner at the top of the stairs where a wall was that begins the hallway. And as I rounded that corner, a bundle of hair came flying out of the shadows. Ah! Scared the life out of me. Got me. Good. I couldn't deny it. Yeah, you did it. And I realized I had never told him, I want you to scare me. He learned it from watching me. In the games that we played as they were growing up, chasing, hiding, and jumping out, he learned the value, the fun of scaring people. And so I thought, you know, he's learned from my example. Now he's going to learn from my words. You need to do this appropriately. You don't scare me, you scare your mother. We're on the same team. We need to find a way, make a plan, and scare her and not me. It's important. Recognized not only the power of my influence, but the power of influence of other people. When our boys were toddlers, we had a friend of our family who taught our boys to count to potato. Five, six, seven, potato. Do you know how hard it is to get toddlers to stop counting to potato once they've learned how to do it? It, it was a long, long process. And so because of that, we're not very careful about who gets to have that influence, that example, the opportunity to speak into their lives. Now, all of this is important for us as we begin to study Romans chapter 11, very specific chapter that Paul wrote, a very, very particular subject that he's speaking about. And it's one of those chapters in the Bible that we read through about the people of Israel and their need for Jesus and the implications of them having turned away from Jesus as the Messiah and needing to recognize him and find grace in him. We, we read all of that and we wonder, how is this applicable to, to me? And that's, that's the challenge that we face today as we read through these words and find real meaning about our lives and our relationship with the Lord. As we read through this chapter, <clears throat> what we'll recognize is the early parts of Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, uh, the chapters preceding this. Chapter 11 is very much a summary conclusion He's of nine, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul's going to be bringing back information even as far back as uh, chapters 6 and 8, ideas, themes that make an impact on the message that Paul is communicating through this passage. And so we need to keep some of those things in mind as we read. Now, very specifically, I want you to remember the beginning of chapter 9 when Paul expressed his sorrow over the people of Israel. He, he was heartbroken over the fact that they had not, all of them, accepted Jesus as their Savior. Chapter 10, the beginning of that chapter, Paul very specifically expressed his prayer for the people of Israel, that they would recognize their need for Jesus. And now, chapter 11, Paul is going to continue that 
that discussion to help us understand how this works. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. You read along in your Bibles. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you have a phone or tablet and you want to use the YouVersion app, just search under events for Parkview Finley, and you'll find scripture and sermon notes in the YouVersion app for our service this morning. Let's begin reading in chapter 1. I ask them, now, this is the, the reminder, this transition phrase to connect our thoughts to chapters 9 and 10, Paul talking about the people of Israel apart from Christ. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So in this opening passage, Paul raised an interesting question concerning the Israelites. Did God reject his people? His answer is no. And he provides two examples against this idea. The first example is his own life. Paul was an Israelite, a, a very dedicated Israelite, dedicated to the Jewish faith. But he was not rejected by God. He had accepted Christ. He was saved. His example carries particular emphasis for the people of Israel because of his dedication, carries particular emphasis for us because now that he is a Christian, he has dedicated his life to the gospel message. Philippians 4, or Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, Paul spoke specifically about the dedication he had here and there. He says this, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Just as Paul was dedicated to the Jewish faith, he now devoted himself to the gospel of Jesus Christ, traveling, establishing churches, setting up leadership, communicating to those churches, helping instruct them in their theology, their understanding of God and their relationship with him. Paul was a clear example of God's grace extended to the people of Israel. He was a Jew who had accepted Christ. They had not been abandoned, but their salvation was not a matter of their national standing with the Lord. It was a matter of personal decision of accepting Christ themselves. And we realize through Paul's example, there's such power in a personal testimony, such power in the example that we each have because of the work of Christ in our lives. God has provided us with a powerful story, a story that demonstrates very clearly the power of God at work in our own lives. God has provided us with experiences that we can share with others to help them see how God can work in their lives as well. Incredible example. Notice that Paul spoke again of the foreknowledge of God, calling on a theme that he spoke of earlier, that God knew what would happen among the Israelites, among his chosen people, even before he called them, before he called Abraham. God could see all of the things that they would accomplish, all the things that they would decide. He knew about the, the struggle they would have to be obedient. He knew about their rebellion. He knew about 
everything that would take place. He knew about this group of Israelites who would have trouble accepting Christ as their Messiah. And yet, God, knowing all things, chose to call them for this purpose, to produce the Messiah through them, to bring hope to all people. The second example that we have from Paul was Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. Elijah, who lived in very difficult times. Remember a few weeks ago when Brady preached, he talked about, he talked about the, the confrontation of Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and the victory that Elijah won for the Lord, demonstrating to the Israelites who gathered there that God was the one true God. After that confrontation, Queen Jezebel, King Ahab, threatened Elijah's life. He, he fled from them in despair. He prayed against the people of Israel, calling out to God. They have torn down your altars. They have killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. I'm alone. He was feeling defeated, feeling lost, feeling alone and afraid. And God's answer to him reminded him of God's power at work among his people, of his presence there. There are still 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to this false god. Still 7,000 Israelites who have remained faithful And he provided Elijah with strength, with the knowledge that he was not alone. So Paul says, so too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. The parallel here between the days of Elijah and the faithful remnant and what what Paul was experiencing with the Israelites and the group of them who did believe in Jesus, that there is still a very strong faith in God and those who have believed in Jesus as the Messiah. God has not rejected all of his people God is responding to their decision about Jesus Christ. Paul's point in the last verse of this section is to sum up the main passage of Romans that for a sinner to be saved, they would need to have grace through Jesus Christ by the power of his blood to forgive sins. And only through Christ can we find salvation. It is grace that we have been given, not something that we can earn, not something that we can accomplish. If it were, it wouldn't be called grace. He continues in verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, did they stumble? so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. So now we read more of Paul's thoughts that he's already written about earlier in the letter. First, we read about this idea of hardening. In the same way he spoke of the the hardening of hearts in chapter 9, he applies this idea to the people of Israel, those who had not believed in Jesus as the Messiah, were hardened. And there's three things we should note about this hardening. First, 
The hardening is not what caused them not to believe in Jesus. They made their decision about Jesus, and then they were hardened. Second, this hardening is not final. God did not harden them and send them off to destruction or condemnation. This is temporary. Third, God has a purpose in his hardening. And he will use the disobedience of Israel to reach the Gentiles with the gospel. And the faith of the Gentiles will stir the Israelites when they see what they're missing out on. And God's plan is to bring those who have been hardened back around into another opportunity for salvation through Christ. Now, the word hardened that we read here in this passage is, is a different word than what was used in regard to Pharaoh from the Old Testament. You remember we talked a little bit about what that word hardened mean, meant when it was used in regard to Pharaoh, the, uh, a, an organ that once brought life is now heavy, dead, no longer pumping to supply life. The hardened heart was no longer doing fulfilling its purpose. There's a desensitization that happens, which also applies here. The word that Paul used here in, in this, this passage of Romans is a hardening that means a closed mind, that the Israelites were hardened to the truth, that they weren't receptive to hear any more information about Jesus. It's also, in other places, a word that's used medically speaking, uh, when trauma on the body occurred like a broken bone, this word for hardening described the callus that formed around the break as the bone started to heal. This, this hard place that would form. And you may know that when your bones heal after you break them, the place that's healed is often stronger than the bones around it. And that hardened place um, is what this word refers to. That word callous is interesting, especially in terms of thinking about how we are hardened in the process of our unbelief, our decisions about the Lord. Sometimes a callous makes it possible for us to continue working where we might have stopped before. I learned this a little bit when I rake leaves in the fall. When the leaves come down and cover my yard, I grab a rake and start, start raking. And the process of, of raking suddenly in the fall creates trauma on my hands. Why? Because I don't practice raking during the year. I don't get the rake out, do a dry run, just to make sure I've got my chops for when fall comes. No. I wait for the leaves to fall, and then I grab my rake. And when I do, the, the abrasion, the pressure, the rubbing of the, the handle of that rake while I'm raking leaves creates first a blister. It's the warning that my body says, stop doing this, it hurts. It's painful. That blister fills and creates a protective bubble so that I won't damage my skin anymore as I continue to rake and try to ignore the pain that I'm feeling because I have to get the leaves off the lawn. When that blister breaks, the skin underneath is sensitive. But as it heals, it toughens. And a callus begins to form. And if I continue to rake, over time, slowly, it's a long process, the skin where the handle of the rake is rubbing will at some point in the future be toughened. And that callus will be less sensitive than the skin around it. So when the people of Israel were hardened, they experienced this, this toughening, this, this desensitization, this hardening that, that 
kept the truth of Christ from infiltrating. We, we experience calluses in different ways. Musicians get calluses on their fingers. Guitar players, when they're pressing the strings, will get blisters and calluses on their fingers. Runners, as they, they run and their feet rub inside their shoes, they'll develop blisters and then calluses so that they can continue running. That repetitive action, that decision to run and continue in that way, produces that toughening, that hardening. Now think in terms of our spiritual lives. When we make decisions to turn away from the Lord, to indulge in things that we know are wrong, that, that first decision doesn't always register as painful or wrong in the way it should. But as we continue to make it, sometimes we, we experience a little bit of pain, like a blister forming. As we continue down that road, we become desensitized. We become hardened. We lose sensitivity to what we're doing. So much so that eventually we, we look up and find ourselves very far from where we started. Because we've been hardened, because we've moved away from, from where we began. And what we find in that place is that because we've been hardened and not realized how far we've moved away, that we're finally in a different perspective. We're finally in a place where we can, one, realize how far we've come, and two, realize the consequences of those decisions and have a real eye-opening moment where we finally understand how much we need Jesus, how much we need to turn back to the Lord and turn away from the sin that we've indulged in so that we can come back to the, to the Lord. And what we find when we're there in this new perspective, this recognition of our need for grace, is that God is patiently extending his grace. He has been patiently extending his grace. Remember at the end of the last chapter when Paul spoke about this Old Testament reference of God's hands extended to an obstinate and disobedient people. As we have moved away from the Lord, what we find is not only was God's grace available to us at this moment when we were close, but as we walked far away, God's grace didn't stop. He continues to be patient in extending grace and has a plan for bringing us back to an opportunity to realize our need for Jesus and make a decision to turn to him. That's what Paul is describing is happening for the people of Israel. They refused to believe in Jesus, and their minds were hardened to that truth so that the Gentiles would then accept Christ. And the influence of the Gentiles on that Jewish people who were hardened, they would look back and see the Gentiles who received what they once were offered and be envious, recognize how far they'd turned away from the Lord, and then see their need for Jesus and be in a new opportunity, a new place where they could accept Christ for themselves. It's very important to see how God is extending grace to us in every moment of our lives, in all of the places where we find ourselves. God is working to draw us back to him. Verse 17, Paul's words continue. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree, 
that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, Paul painted a picture for us of this, this cultivation of olive trees, and he described the spiritual connection with grafting branches. And it's difficult for us to understand. We don't do a lot of that grafting kind of thing in our lives today. It's a very, very specific skill set for a specific group of people who work with fruit trees. But out of this picture, Paul has two very clear things to say. First is a warning. That in our faith, we should be careful not to let pride, overconfidence, overshadow our standing with the Lord. We aren't saved because of the family we belong to, the church that we attend, the tasks that we accomplish for the Lord. We look back to Paul's example. The Israelites had become very proud of who they were as God's chosen people. They had become overconfident in their ability to adhere to the law. And it was their pride that blinded them to Jesus as the Messiah. They were unwilling to accept him, and that was their downfall. And the Gentiles who believed in Christ, Paul said, be very careful that you don't also become proud of who you are, that you don't let pride bring about your downfall. You're not better than the Jews who turned away from Jesus. We all have an opportunity to accept him as Lord and Savior, and we all have an opportunity to experience the grace of God that's been patiently extended to us. The second message that we hear from Paul is a word of hope. The kindness of God was expressed to those who had faith in Jesus Christ. That as stern as God was in removing the branches that were unfaithful, God has expressed kindness and continues to express kindness. This kindness would be extended not only the first time we hear about Jesus, but also when we find ourselves far away. After we've turned our back on the Lord, we would still experience the kindness of God and be allowed back into his family, back into the fold. There's hope. What we find in this, in this example of fruit trees and the grafting of branches is a message that God always provides what we need to grow. It's available to us. And this is the, the process of, of grafting branches into a tree. When, when a, a fruit grower, an olive grower, an apple tree grower has a very strong base tree with, with, with healthy roots, a very healthy trunk, the, the, the arborist, whatever you call those people who tend trees, they can use that healthy tree to produce fruit from a branch of a tree that isn't healthy. If they find a, a sapling, a young tree that, that isn't producing fruit, they can take a branch from that young tree and, and graft it into the healthy root and, and trunk of this other tree, and that root system will provide that branch with nutrients, will, will enable that branch to grow and produce fruit in a way that it never could have where it was. Now, the process of moving a branch from one tree to another involves cutting, pruning. There's a, a very specific cut that's made on the healthy tree and also a cut that's made to move the branch from where it is. And then once the, you the arborist brings those two pieces together, there are more cuts that are made to expose raw wood so that when those, when those damaged parts are brought together, they, the tree begins to heal itself around those cuts. Rather than the healthy tree just healing over the cut, when they place that new branch in and connect the pieces, they bind it together and the tree actually heals around the wounds, incorporating that branch 
into the trunk of, of the tree. It's an amazing process that you might not have realized was even possible, that, that this, this healing incorporates that branch into the tree. And that new branch is given access to the supply of nutrients from the roots, given access to everything it needs to grow and produce fruit. We think of how that works spiritually. And it's very similar to what Paul told us earlier in chapter 8 about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, that we have constant contact with the Spirit, empowering us, supplying us with everything that we need so that our lives will produce fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And as branches engrafted into the tree, we find a source of life and strength in the Lord that enables us to produce fruit. And God gives us access, provides everything that we need to grow. But the process of growth is not always simple and painless and easy. The process is often very painful. The first step is the cuts that are made to remove us from our environment so that we can be grafted into the tree. The, the cuts that, that remove the negative environment from our lives, the, the painful process of cutting away the sinfulness that we need to leave behind as we turn to the Lord. That's the first cut that's made. And then as we, as we come close to the tree, the source of life, those wounds need to be made so that as we're grafted in, we can heal and become a part of the tree. That's an important part of the process of growth that we aren't always prepared for. That yes, this new access to the tree will give us everything we need to grow, will give us life. And yet, as we grow, as we find ourselves there, we have to deal with those pains, we have to deal with those wounds as we surrender them to the Lord and allow him to heal us so that we can grow. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 is where Paul continues. He says this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. As far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, as Paul summarized his thoughts from this passage, uh, one message is clear. God is merciful to us. And not only is God merciful to us, but he expresses his mercy through us to the people in our lives. The first way we experience God's mercy is the way we see him working in our own lives. He's merciful to us, extending grace and forgiveness to us through Christ, the gift that we don't deserve. This mercy makes all the difference in the world, delivering us into a new life, freeing us from sin, drawing us into relationship with him. And this, this mercy that we tend to focus on because it's been so meaningful, because we have experienced such change as a result of God's mercy to us, and it's a mercy that we come to depend on. 
But we also need to be aware of how God expresses his mercy through us. That God is using our lives. He's using our story. He's using our relationships to reveal his mercy to others. God even uses our disobedience to make an impact in the lives of others. And Paul's message through this chapter is about how God used one group of people to make a huge spiritual impact on another. And that second group of people would then in turn affect the first. God has been working, patiently extending grace with a very clear and calculated plan. And it's difficult for us to understand how God is working in each of these moments, in each of these situations, to express his mercy, to reveal and extend his grace. He is doing it in a way that, that you, I would almost never have thought possible. That God is using even the most painful experiences, even the, the disobedience of Israel, even the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, as an opportunity to make an impact on another group of people an opportunity for God to extend his mercy and grace. And it it causes me to wonder how God is working in our lives today. Not only to extend his grace and mercy to us, but how he's affecting the people that we rub shoulders with every day through our lives. How God is using our example. How God is using our words. Even when we, we aren't aware of it, that we are making an impact. That we are influencing people. And that God is creating opportunity for them to recognize and respond to his mercy and grace. Paul concludes this passage with this praise of God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We may never fully understand God's plan. We may never fully understand the intricate way that God patiently extends his grace in our lives and the way he uses us to express his mercy to others. But that doesn't mean we can't be a part of it. And the decision that we have to make is first about accepting grace and mercy from the Lord. And then the decision we have to make is how we can participate with the Lord, how we can come alongside him and support this expression of mercy and grace, how we can help him reach the people in our world to influence them to understand how much they need the Lord and how they can accept him in the same way that we have. Those are the decisions that we're faced with this morning. And I want to challenge you to think very personally about your relationship with the Lord and how you can grow in your understanding of his mercy and grace. If you have a decision to make this morning, if there's anything in your life you need prayer for, please come forward as we stand and sing together.